This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, Thomas Cranmer was a was the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury under King Henry VIII, and that, of course, would have been the Church of England at that time, it was separated from the Roman Catholic Church because of Henry's divorce from his wife Catherine because she didn't give him any sons. Well, in 1547, Henry died and was succeeded by his 11-year-old son, Edward VI. And Edward was a convinced uh, Protestant. But Edward died six years later, and eventually his half-sister Mary took the throne. And Mary was a devout Catholic. Uh, And she was also the daughter of Catherine, who Henry had sent away many years before. And Mary had a very miserable and hard childhood. And, And she blamed it on Protestantism and more particularly and specifically on Thomas Cranmer. So, eventually she had Cranmer arrested and imprisoned for three years because he protested her replacing the the English book of prayer with the Roman Catholic Mass. And while he was in prison, he became weary, and he was discouraged, and his confidence and his faith were shaken. And in exchange for his life and for his freedom, he was persuaded to sign six recantations, uh, which basically said... He renounced Protestantism. And that wasn't enough for Mary. It wasn't enough that he did renounce all of those things. Uh, she still wanted him dead. And so, eventually, she had him burned at the stake. And on March 25th, 1556, he was burned at the stake. But before he was burned, excuse me one second, before he was burned, um, he publicly repented of all of his sins, uh, especially his denial of the gospel. And as the fire was lit, he put forth his right hand first and said these words, As my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished. So he was was burned. Well, Cranmer's denial of the faith and then repentance was not the first time a prominent believer fell and then was restored. The greatest denial happened the night that Jesus was betrayed and was arrested and illegally condemned to death. And it wasn't by an enemy. Uh, it wasn't by a, a far associate. This was one of his closest friends, someone who really did love him. It was the Apostle Peter. And, 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 and on the night of Jesus' greatest agony, on the night when all of his friends abandoned him, on a night when the furies of hell are raging against him, i got to believe that Peter's denials of him must have broken his heart. i got to believe that. Well, Peter is in great sin, and he is. And although it is easy to read this account and see, see this great wickedness uh, that even a follower of Jesus is capable of doing, and we are, right? We also see in this account the amazing love and the amazing forgiveness that Jesus has for his people, right? We also see the grace and restoration that Jesus gives to his people. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record Peter's denials. And whenever you see all four Gospels writing on the same thing, it tells us something. And, and what it tells us is we need to pay close attention to it. Right? The Holy Spirit wants us to see Peter's great fall and then ultimately God's great forgiveness in the midst of it. 
and, and with that said, what I'd like to do is look at this great fall, which we see in verses 58 and then 69 to 75, using a three-point outline. And if you have a bulletin, it'll be on the back of that bulletin. And that is very simply Peter's, deni- Peter's desire, Peter's denials, and then Peter's double whammy. And we'll get there. I'll explain that in a minute. All right. Before we look at even her first desire, let me sort of set the orders, the order of event of what's going on, because a lot is going on. And again, the four Gospels will piece it together for us. All right. After the multitude arrest Jesus uh, in the garden, uh, we know from John's Gospel that they take Jesus to Annas' house uh, to be interrogated. Remember, Annas was once the high priest 20 years before, but he wasn't the high priest anymore, though basically he called the shots. Uh, And Peter and John get into the high priest's courtyard because John somehow has some connection to the high priest. Now, this is where it gets a little sticky uh, for some of us, uh, and that is that Peter's first denial happens in Annas' courtyard, and the next two seem to happen in Caiaphas' courtyard. Uh, and, And so they seem, you know, that they happen in two different places, and that's kind of odd for us because the timing doesn't seem to allow that. But I think John MacArthur has a very valid solution to what seems to be an issue, and that is that Annas most likely lived in an annex or a wing of the high priest's palace. Uh, most likely he lived there. So his courtyard would have been Caiaphas's courtyard. Uh, and it makes sense uh, because the high priest's palace was extremely large, and it was definitely a palace, uh, and could easily accommodate the elderly uh, Annas. And, and so with that, a servant girl... Uh, lets John in, and then lets Peter into the courtyard, and then she questions Peter if he was with Jesus. He denies it. And then another servant girl comes up with others around, and they say that they believe Peter was with Jesus, and again, he denies it. Uh, and then about an hour later or so, someone who stood by Peter asks, asks him uh, if he has some association with Jesus, because he seems to be. And for the third time, Peter denies it, and at that point, a rooster crows for the second time. So that's sort of the sort of the flow of how things go. Now let's look at his desire. Now many have condemned Peter for denying Jesus, and indeed he is guilty of it. But I kind of, I kind of admire his love and his courage, even though it's all misplaced. You see, yes, he does flee from the garden with the other, with the other apostles, but unlike the other apostles, minus John, he couldn't bail out. He couldn't bail out. He, he loves Jesus. He's committed to Jesus, and he wants to be there for him. But here's the thing. He is afraid for his life. And so we read in verse 58, as I read before, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat down with the servants to see the end. So he wants to follow Jesus, just not that close at this point. He is torn between love and fear. He is torn between courage and cowardice. He's torn. Right? He has to be around Jesus in some way, just not that close. And the truth is, if he would have fled and stayed away like everyone else did, all the other apostles, he would have never been in a position to deny Jesus three times. Well, Matthew says he followed Jesus because he wanted to see the end. Maybe Jesus would do what he did in the garden and just say something and everybody would fall backwards on the ground and that would be it. Maybe Jesus would change his mind about calling down those 12 legions of angels. And again, that would be it. Everybody would be done. But if Peter truly had listened to Jesus, and if he had believed the words of Jesus, he would have known what the end was going to be. He would have known it. Because Jesus said on multiple occasions, he would be arrested, he would be beaten, he would be crucified, all happening in Jerusalem, 
And then he would rise three days later. And he had just said to his disciples that night, in verse 32 of this chapter, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. What does it mean after I've been raised? He's going to rise again. So Peter doesn't need to see the end. Jesus has already told them the end. And listen, with all the evil and the violence and the hatred and the rank immorality that is in the world that we live in today, Christians seem to wonder, what's going on? Where's all this going? Right? I, I hear that all the time. Right? How do we make things better? What's the future going to be like? Well, listen, Jesus has told us this too. He's already told us this. He's already told us what the future is going to be like. Right? In Matthew chapter 24, he tells us, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes all over the place. And believers will be delivered up to tribulation and killed. And they will be hated all by all people for his name's sake. And there will be many false prophets. And there will be lawlessness which will abound. And the love of many will grow cold. And, and after the gospel is preached in all the world to all the nations, then the end will come. So basically, what the scriptures tell us, things are not going to get better. They're not getting better. They're going to get worse. And a politician or a political party or better Supreme Court justices, they're not going to fix it. They will not fix it. Because the Lord is gearing up to judge the world. And that's how it's going to end. And America's problem is, is not a social issue. It's not a race issue. It's not an economical issue, right? It's a spiritual issue. And that's what every nation's problem is. It's a spiritual issue. And so he's told us, we don't have to be like scratching our heads, what's going on? Well, Peter has a big heart for Jesus. But it is often misguided and earthly minded. Which is why after Jesus told his disciples he must go to Jerusalem must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. He said all of them, it starts in Matthew 16. Peter rebukes Jesus. And he says, Far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And what's Jesus' response to that? Oh, thanks for loving me and caring about me? Thanks for trying to protect me? No. Get behind me, Satan. You just called, you just called him a small rock. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Why? For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How about like an hour before, in the garden, that night, right? Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. Put it away. What are you doing? This is not how my kingdom is advanced. This is not how one defends my kingdom. And this is not how one grows it. But when you think about it, it takes a lot of guts although extremely impulsive, to pull out one of only two swords with 600 armed Roman soldiers and a couple of hundred other armed people. It takes a lot of guts to do that. And it takes a lot of guts to go into the high priest's courtyard while the Sanhedrin is condemning Jesus to death. And it takes a lot of guts to go into enemy territory. And for that, I admire Peter. Right? The truth is, how many of us would have pulled the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane? And how many of us would have walked into that courtyard? I'm guessing not many of us, right? Probably not many of us. But Peter does. He does, but here's the unfortunate part. He wants to go in unnoticed. 
He wants to blend in with everybody else with the crowd. Because why? He fears man. And this is his downfall. Right? So, so he starts by following Jesus at a distance. And let me tell you something. Right? A Christian is in danger when they are following Jesus from a distance. There's a danger. There's a danger in that. Right? Because that means that there's a lot of stuff between you and Jesus when you're following at a distance. There's things in between you. Things that are keeping you from being close to Jesus. Things like idols of the heart and cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches and selfishness and pride. And the list is probably very long, but there are things in between. And Christians are happiest and safest and most glorifying to God when they are walking close to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 29, that he wants us to take his yoke upon ourselves and to learn from him. And a yoke was worn by two mules or, or two oxen so that they would walk together and they would pull together whatever the load was. And Jesus is saying is he wants us to walk with him, wants us to be led by him, all right? and by walking with him to learn from him. Because we can't learn from a distance. And so the question is for all of us today, are you following Jesus from a distance? You know what I mean by that? Are there things between you and him that are keeping you close from him and from enjoying true fellowship biblically with him? Are there a lot of things between you? It's a question we have to ask. And so we see his desire, but now we come to the denials. Let's look at the denials. Back in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus told all of his apostles that they would all be made to stumble of him because of him that night, and they would all run away and abandon him. And Peter said, I'll never do that. Even if the rest of these guys do that, I will never do that. I can never do that. And Jesus said, well, Peter, not only will you do that, but you will also even deny knowing me three times this very night, even before the rooster crows twice. To which Peter said, you're wrong. Lord, you're wrong. You don't know my heart. Even if I have to die, I will not, I will not deny him. Well, a few hours later, Jesus is arrested in the garden, taken to Annas's, and then to Caiaphas's, and then the Sanhedrin put him on trial. And Peter is led into the high priest's courtyard by a servant girl at the gate because of somehow he has a connection with John. And by the way, this is the last time we read of anything about John this night. John's out of the picture. It's all about Peter. And Luke tells us that some guys are making a fire in the midst of the courtyard, and Peter sits among them. And Mark tells us he was warming himself by the fire. Obviously, it was cool that night. Uh, and John tells us that he warmed himself by the fire with the servants and with the officers, which would be the temple police. So then some, or many of those who were in that crowd, in that multitude, are people that were in, involved in Jesus' arrest, right? Because they're in the courtyard. Remember, it's between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning. So people just aren't hanging around at 1 to 3 in the morning unless they're there for a reason, and it was a big to-do to arrest Jesus. So they're there. They're there. And what Peter is trying to do is to blend in with these people. He's trying to blend in with the enemies of Christ. He's trying to blend in with the world. And Matthew tells us the servant girl who actually let him in comes up to him, and in front of all of those who are around the fire, she says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. And Luke tells us she comes up to Peter, looks intently at him, she's checking him out to make sure, oh yeah, 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 and says, this man was also with him. So she fingers Peter as one of Jesus' disciples in front of the group that's warming themselves by the fire. And Peter is put on the spot. So what does he say? What does he do? Does he say, yes, 
I am a follower and a disciple of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who happens to have the words of eternal life? Does he say that? No. Instead he says, I I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. And Mark gives us a little more here. He says, I neither know nor understand what you were saying. In other words, listen, little girl, I don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. You're really wrong on this thing. So a lowly servant girl, a lowly servant girl confronts him, and guess what? He crumbles. She's not the Sanhedrin. She's not the temple police. She's not a Roman guard. Right? She is one of the lowest people in that courtyard. She's a servant girl. And he's struck with fear. Fear for his life. So he says, you're totally mistaken. You know what? You have, you have the wrong guy. And it reminds us of Elijah. After he has this massive, epic battle on Mount Carmel and with the, the prophets of Baal. And he wins this God-glorifying battle. God gives does miraculous stuff and, and destroys this, this, this offering that they're trying to offer up. And then, and then he slays the, the prophets of Baal. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. But then he finds out that, that Jezebel is gunning for him. Jezebel said, that's it. I'm going to get you for that. You just wiped out my prophets. And what does he do? He fled. He was petrified. All right? And that reminds him, one, one, oh, she was a queen, of course, and she had authority and, and influence in some way, but he feared for his life. And that's what Peter does here. Listen, Peter is the guy who just drew the sword before a thousand men. And he crumbles before a servant girl. And within no time, he denies his Lord. And Mark tells us, after this first denial, that the rooster crowed once. So there we go, the first crowing. And and I'd like you to notice this like progression, this Peter's progression here. Right? He walks into the courtyard. Right? And, And 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 John tells us he stands around the fire uh, with those who are warming themselves. And then we read he sits by the fire with those who are warming themselves. And, and does this not bring to mind Psalm 1-1 about the man who is blessed? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Well, guess what? Peter walks into them, he stands with them, and he sits with them. He sits with the ungodly. He sits with sinners. He sits with the scornful who are the enemies of his Lord. And because he's trying to fit in with them, he wants to seem like he's one of them. Right? He wants to seem like he's one of them. And this is a serious place of compromise and it leads to backsliding, which Peter did in a big way. And I mean, how can salt and light blend in with decay and darkness? How can the redeemed blend in with reprobates? Well, if you fear man... And if you fear the mocking that can come from men, you just may do that, right? And, and if, like Peter, you say nothing, you just warm yourself by the fire with them, then guess what? Your co-workers, your relatives, your neighbors, when you go back to school, your schoolmates, your old friends, they're all going to be good with you. You'll just blend right in. But if you speak the truth, if you speak up for truth, if you call sin what it is, if you claim the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior... Well, then I'm guessing you're going to feel some of that heat. Now, I'm going to guess that the guys that Peter is around the fire with, they're probably mocking Jesus. They're probably mocking him because the reason they're there is because they have probably in some way, shape, or form were involved in arresting him. 
And so they're probably mocking him and blaspheming him. Right? And, and they're probably calling him a deceiver and a liar and a false messiah. The, the son of David, my eyeball, and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, he's demonic, gets his strength and powers from, from Satan. And who knows what else they're saying, but here's the thing. Peter doesn't say anything. He's just sitting there, warm himself by the fire, right? He doesn't say anything. He lets it slide. He lets it slide. And when you're not walking close to the Lord, when there's a distance between you and him, it's not so hard to dishonor him. And it's not so hard to deny him. Listen, if you say nothing when people around you slander him, right, and blaspheme your Lord, they'll be okay with you. But let's think for a second. What would you say if people slandered or said all kinds of wicked things about your mother or your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter? Like, what would you do? Don't say anything. Call my mother every name in the book. I'm not going to say anything. Listen, you know how many fistfights I saw as a kid? People calling someone else's, someone else's mother a name? It, it came to blows when you called someone's mother a name. You could call somebody a lot of stuff, but when you said your mother something, boom, that was it. All right? And you're laughing, but you know it's true. Well, when I grew up. And yet how many of us will not stand up for Jesus? Because we're afraid. Well, Mark tells us Peter moves to another location. Matthew tells us in verse 71, uh, and, and when he had gone out of the gateway, out to the gateway, another girl saw him and, 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 and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. All right? Now this servant girl is not just saying this to Peter, but she's saying it to all who were there. So it's a, it's a community thing now. All right? And, and, and John tells us that, that others beside the servant girl, they're saying... Uh, you are not also one of his disciples? Question mark. Aren't you? Weren't you with him? Didn't we see you there? And so the questions and the accusations are mounting, and Peter is sinking in fear. And here comes the second denial, right? And this one is worse than the first. It's more adamant. Listen to verse 72 of Matthew 26. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. Wow, he takes an oath, and that means he swears before God that he doesn't know Jesus. It's like putting your hand on the Bible and swearing to tell the truth. Right? And it's interesting because Jesus is called on by the high priest to take an oath before God, to, to swear before God whether he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers under oath before the living God that yes, indeed, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. But Peter offers up his own oath. And then he lies before God and man. Now to show you how fast Peter is falling, notice what he says. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. He doesn't say, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know the Lord. I don't know my master. I I, I don't know the man. He can't even call him by his name. He can't even call him Jesus or Lord or master, but the man. right? He can't even name the one his heart loves. How would your wife feel, your husband, if you said, her. Oh, I really love, you know, what if Danny would always call Candy her? She, that lady. Oh, you know what? I might wear on her a little bit. It's his wife. He loves her. All right? He can't call him by his name. Can't even call the one he, he loves with all his heart because of his fear, because of his sin. So he totally disowns Jesus. Well, Luke says about an hour later, probably about 3 a.m. in the morning now, 
we have the third denial. Uh, and we read that in Luke. We read in Luke 22:59. 59. Uh, uh, we read another competently affirmed saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Matthew says it this way in verse 73. Those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. And Mark says that a relative of Malchus, remember that's the guy that he chopped off his ear, was, was, comes up to Peter and says to him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? So basically you have an eyewitness. Basically you have an eyewitness, and since you talk like a Galilean, you must be one of his disciples. And evidently, people from Galilee had a distinct accent. And they talked and pronounced words a certain way, and that gives Peter away. Kind of like back in Judges 12, where the Ephraimites are pursuing the Gileadites to kill them. Uh, and, and when they would see someone, they would ask them, say the word shibboleth. Uh, and, 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 and if they couldn't, if they, instead of S-H, if they would just do S-I-B, if they say shibboleth, they couldn't do shibboleth, they said, oh, that's a Gileadite, kill him. They knew from speech, right, that, that he wasn't one of them. Um, a ways back, someone visited the church once, and only once, uh, and after the service, they said to me, you know, Pastor, you have an accent. Right? And I said, uh, yeah, no. And then this individual said, have you ever tried to lose it? i like, no, no, not really. Right? But I, I know I have an accent. <laughs> okay, you got me. Uh, but the point here is, Peter's speech gives him away. It associates him with Jesus. And the question for us today is this. Does our speech, does my speech, does your speech let people know that we are associated with Jesus? Does our speech let people know that we are a follower of Jesus? Or does our speech let them know something else? Right? If they're listening to us for any length of time, do they say, well, ho, ho, he's a food enthusiast. Well, you know, this person is a, a sport fanatic or a political activist or an economist or a financial person or whatever. Right? After listening to us for a while, what would others say about us? What would they think about us? Would they say, that guy sounds like a Christian. That lady, she sounds like a believer in Jesus. I mean, do we speak the truth and love to others? Is there praise and thankfulness for God on our lips? Are we singing, as it were, a new song? Hopefully, when people spend any amount of time with us, they would figure out, that lady, she believes in Jesus. That's the hope. Well, now comes the third denial, and this is the worst of all. It's worse than the last one, which is worse than the first. And we read in verse 74 of Matthew 26 uh, that, that Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And that would be with, like, anger. All right? And so to swear is to affirm, to affirm or deny with an oath. And Peter adds cursing to his swearing. And cursing here does not mean filthy language. It's not what it means. It means to call down an evil upon yourself if you're lying. Uh, and, and, so, and this word, curse, comes from a form of the Greek word which we get anathema from, which means to devote something to destruction or to be damned. And so what Peter is saying is this. I don't know who Jesus is, and if I'm lying, may the God of heaven strike me dead and damn me in hell forever. That's what he's saying. Like, that's what he's saying. That's how fearful he is. To that point, he'll say anything to save his skin. He'll save anything to save himself. He'll not only take an oath, but he'll actually call down a curse upon himself if he's lying. Do you see the slippery slope here? Do you see the slippery slope of sin? you see how quickly it goes downhill? 
He goes from, I don't know what you're saying, to taking an oath, to calling down divine wrath upon himself, should he be lying. Once you go down this path, once you go down the path of sin, it gets easier to do it, and you go deeper and deeper into it. And they start small, and it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs pretty quickly. Very few heroin addicts actually start out by taking heroin. Right? Many start out dabbling in marijuana, maybe some pills, uppers, coke, crack, and they start slow. Uh, and then they need something greater, something more intense, something to, uh, that give them a greater high, and they get hooked on heroin. Listen, the guy that cheats on his wife doesn't wake up one morning and say out of the blue, today I'll cheat on my wife. Today I'll commit adultery. No. Usually there's been some flirting. There's, there's been some fantasizing, some pornography. All of this stuff has been brewing. It's brewing on him. And then finally one day he takes the leap. But it's been going on. It's been going on in his head and his heart. Now the question here is, how can one so close to Jesus, so committed to Jesus, deny Jesus like this? How could one who witnessed his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration deny him like this? How could one who walked on water, albeit probably not that far, but he walked on water to Jesus, how can he deny him three times? How could one who genuinely loved Jesus, and he did, disown him like this before men. And I think the answer here is multifaceted because I think there is an answer. First of all, for one, he's unprepared, spiritually speaking. Jesus told him in the garden, watch and pray. Watch and pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He told him that very night Satan was gunning for him, that he wanted to sift him as wheat. So Peter, you need to be prayed up. But instead, Peter slept. He didn't need to pray. He could handle the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places all on his own. He could do it. Not only was he unprepared, but he also didn't trust the words of Jesus. Jesus told him point blank, you will be offended by me. You will scatter. You will deny me three times, and you're going to do all of this within a few hours. And you know what Peter said? I don't believe that. Blew it off. You're wrong. I would never do those things. And when you disregard the word of God, that's for other people. I would never do that. When you disregard the word of God, you are set up for a fall. You are set up for a fall. Well, not only that, he's very proud. He's an arrogant man. He's a cocky man. Right? I am past the point of falling. Never me. I, I'm your main guy. I would never do that. And, and he thought he was too committed, too good a follower to ever flounder. Jesus, I've been following you for three and a half years, and, and I know the ropes. I'm as faithful as an apostle as you have. I don't know if you remember, but many years ago, there was a, a show called The Crocodile Hunter. The guy's name was Steve Irwin from Australia. And we used to watch it all the time when Glow was a kid. I loved it, actually. Uh, and what he would do, this guy would wrestle like crocodiles, and he would catch poisonous snakes in his hands, and he would, he would sit there and swim with sharks, and he would defy death over and over again with all kinds of dangerous animals. And, and it was always fascinating. I'd watch a show and I'd say, this guy's crazy, but he's good. You know, but he's really good. Well, in 2005, he got into the water with an eight-foot wide stingray to take some film, something that he had most likely done many times in the past. I mean, stingray, big deal. But he got cocky. He got lax. 
didn't pay attention. And then all of a sudden, because of his carelessness and not being on guard, the stingray stung him a couple of hundred times in his chest. And within a few minutes, he was dead. He thought he, thought he could do it. He wasn't paying attention. Well, Peter is trusting in his past experiences. He's trusting in his performances and the benefits and the blessings he's had in the past. And well did Solomon say, pride comes before a fall. Oh, man, I will never fall to that thing. Well, you may. Another contributor to Peter's fall is he's impulsive, which I said before. He doesn't think. He doesn't listen. He doesn't get counsel. Right? Just, boom, reacts. The gun comes out and shoots. Right? And he says foolish things and does foolish things. He doesn't get counsel. Something right away. Boom, I can handle it. Boom, boom, boom. He also feared man and he feared circumstances. So he took his eyes off of Jesus, like when he walked on water. Right? When he, when he, when he doesn't focus on Jesus, he goes down. Because he considers the waves and the winds and he stops fearing God. Instead, he's, he's fearing man. And John Calvin said of this, He who has thrown away the fear of God may tremble at the fall of a leaf. Lastly, he compromised. He allowed himself to blend in with the world around him. He compromised. He was okay with warming himself with the enemies of his Lord. And Matthew Henry said this. I love this. He said, Those who warm themselves with evildoers grow cold toward good people and good things. And those who are found at the devil's fireside are in danger of the devil's fire. So when you put all of this together, what you get are cursing and swearing that he doesn't even know the man. And this seemed impossible to Peter. right? And maybe, maybe today, denying Jesus and disowning him seems impossible to you. Ah, nah, Peter fell. I would never do that. Man, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I love him. I love him with all my heart. I would never do that. I could never fall like that. But here it is. Here's the truth. We can. The reason why it's in four Gospels is to show us that we can. Listen, Peter was as close to Jesus as you and I can ever be, I think. And yet he did. Well, was the warning in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, 12, is this. Therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. How many men say, I would never cheat on my wife? How many women say, I would never cheat on my husband? They do. They do. And on and on and on. Here was Peter's problem. He failed to recognize the weakness of his own flesh. He overestimated his ability to resist sin. He underestimated his own propensity to sin. And he underestimated the sinfulness of sin. Not that bad. What's the big deal? Everybody does it. I can handle it. Been there before. Right? And we just think, I can just, I'll do it again. And so we see his desire, his denials. And now, I love this one, the double whammy. I know it doesn't flow phonetically, but it's a double whammy. Look at verses 74 and 75. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Right? Curses and swears. He has no idea who Jesus is. And, and the words, as they're finishing coming out of his mouth, we read a rooster crows, and Mark tells us it's the second time. And Peter remembered at that point what Jesus said. So the crowing of the rooster was a reminder. It was a reminder. But here's the thing. There's another reminder. It's a double whammy. Right? And we find that one only in Luke. And I want you to turn. I want you to see this. Luke 22. 
Turn with me there, please. I want you to see this. And I'm so blessed that Luke put this in there because it, it adds so much more to this. All right, Luke 22, verses 60 and 61. Now keep in mind, we already know the rooster crows. But something else happens at that exact time. All right, look at verse 60 in Luke 22. Immediately, right then. Immediately, while he was speaking, the words are coming out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. And, and, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Now somehow, while Jesus is in Caiaphas' house being grilled and condemned and beaten by the Sanhedrin, he is in direct view of Peter, who is outside. And so the rooster crows, and Jesus turns, and he looks at Peter, and for a moment, Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes, they lock. They lock eyeballs. They lock eyeballs. Right? And Peter's memory is jolted by this audio and visual reminder for you tech guys. Audio visual reminder. Right? It's jolted. It is jolted. Right? He's swimming in his sin at this point. And the sound of the rooster and the sight of Jesus bring to mind what Jesus said just hours before, how he would deny him three times before the rooster even crowed twice. You see, Peter is stopped dead in his sin by the crow and by the glance. And I can only imagine what that glance must have been like for Peter. Right there he sees Jesus probably bloodied, his face probably swollen from the punches and the spit that is stuck and dripping from him. And they lock eyeballs. And they lock eyeballs. And Peter's heart is cut. It's cut open because Jesus is the Lord of love and Jesus is the Lord he loves. You see, he sees him and he goes, I love him. And I know he loves me. And yet, he has adamantly disowned him. And Jesus told him he would do it. And Peter swore up and down he would never do it. And now he did it. And he did it against the one that that was sent from God. He sinned against the Christ, the Son of God. And you got to believe that Jesus did not shoot him an angry look. And you got to believe, didn't shoot him one of those, I told you so looks. I don't think so at all. I think the look was a look of love and a look of compassion. As if he's saying, Peter, I still love you. I still love you. And I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to die for you, Peter. And even this will be forgiven. I think that's the look. I think that's the look. And, and, and because I think that's the look, that had to hurt Peter. That had to hurt him. How could Jesus love him so much? How could Jesus love him so much when Peter sinned so greatly against him? Do you ever, in your own life and own mind, say to yourself, after you're like a, your heart's like a cesspool, and you say something, and you're selfish, and, and, and prideful, and arrogant, and you, and you have a, a, a hatred in your heart for something or someone, and you say to yourself, that is ugly. And then you say to yourself, how could Jesus love me? How could he love me like that? Because he does, you understand, if you're his, he does. I'm not happy with how we are, right? It's not good. Well, he loves me, so I can send up a storm here. No, God forbid we have that attitude. But he still loves me, even though I'm, my heart is like a cesspool at times. And do you ever, do you ever think that way? I'd say yes. All right, good, because I don't, I don't want to be the only guy, right? And so we think that way. How could he love me? But he does. He does, right? And even though we sin greatly against him. I mean, Peter just sold him down the river. He wouldn't even call him by his name. That man. He wouldn't even own him. That man. Peter deserved to suffer the curses that he called out upon himself. It would have been right for God to do that if, if, if he wanted to. 
Right? But Jesus looked at him with sympathy and affection and love. So Peter is confronted with his sin through the crowing of a rooster and the look of Jesus. And because of them, Mark tells us that Peter thought about it. He thought about it, and then he wept bitterly. See, up to this point, Peter's not thinking about anything. He's not thinking about anything Jesus said or, or the Word of God. He's thinking about how to save his skin. He's thinking about how to, how to help himself from the sin he's immersed in. But the crowing of the rooster and the look of Jesus, it stops him dead in his tracks and it makes him think. It makes him think about Jesus' words. It makes him think about his arrogant promise never to deny Jesus. To think about what Jesus just said hours before, how Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. And that there was a spiritual battle going on on the highest levels, uh, gunning for, for Peter. And Jesus, out of love and compassion and a warning, told him. But Peter brushed it off, basically saying, that's all right, I can handle it. And so he thought about these things. All right? And, and when, he, when he did, he saw his sin as against the Lord. And it caused him to weep bitterly. And Luke tells us he leaves the courtyard and then he weeps bitterly. And this weeping bitterly in this case, and we'll look at it next, the next time I preach with, with Judas, is, about, is, a, is, a, is showing us some true repentance going on here. You see, he needed to think about it and he needed something to, or things to prompt him to think about it. Because a lot of times we're just immersed in whatever we're doing. We're not thinking about things. It's kind of like Revelation chapter 2 with the, with the church at Ephesus. And they got a lot of good things going on, but they got a real bad thing. And he says, you, you have left your first love, and that's him. Right? And then he says these three things. He says, I'm going to take away the candlestick, meaning, meaning I'm going to shut you guys down. All right? Unless you re- remember where you've fallen from, repent, turn, change, and, and return to me. Remember. You've got to remember where, where you've fallen from. Right? And, and when Peter thought about it, he wept bitterly because he knew he sinned against God. He had godly sorrow, which produces repentance, which is the mark of a believer. The evidence that one is truly a born-again believer is that there is godly sorrow and that there is repentance of sin in their lives. And here's the thing. God uses different means to prompt us to think, to think on and to see our sin and to drive us to repentance. He uses things like his rod sickness, circumstances, hardship. He uses things like Christian music, reading of the Word of God, hearing the Word of God preached. He uses rebukes from brothers and sisters. He sends, as it were, Nathans to us to confront us on our sin so that we, like David, would be cut to the heart and be deeply convicted. And we would cry out, like David cried out, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So, brothers and sisters, when we gaze upon the Lord spiritually speaking, and we look into his eyes, spiritually speaking. It ought to break us if we're denying him by disobeying him or walking at a distance of him. It ought to break us when we, when we think of his flawless love for us, in spite of us. And that ought to move us to put away whatever it is, whatever it is, to put it away. The sin that's gripping our hearts, unleash it, get rid of it. You see, a genuine glance at Jesus and from Jesus should melt the backsliding heart of any believer. Got to look at him. Got to think about him. Got to remember who he is and what he's done. And oh, that God would give us those continual crowings, if you will, and glances, if you will, 
to prompt us to see our sin and to turn from our sin. He wants us to walk holy. He wants us to walk holy. Well, Peter denies Jesus, but Jesus won't deny him because Jesus can't deny him, right? Thus he allows the abuse and the blasphemy against himself. Why? Because he had to accomplish the redemption of his people. And here's the thing. Peter is one of his people. And if you were born again, then you are one of his people too. And, and, and what would have given Peter great comfort in his agony, once he remembered what he had done, and remembered that Jesus told him that Satan was gunning for him, was that Jesus said, I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying that your faith would not fail. I'm praying for you. And at this point, Peter's faith is on life support. But it can't fail, and it won't fail, because it's God-given. And it's a gift from God. And Jesus is also praying for him. Right? And Jesus just didn't pray for Peter. He's praying for all believers, and he's praying all believers for all time that we would not fail. John 17, 20 and 21, high priestly prayer. I do not pray for these alone, those his disciples and apostles, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one. Sanctification. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. But then he says in Hebrews 7.25, he tells us that, that even now in heaven, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So he's praying for us. He's praying for us. That his grace would cause us to grow in holiness. That we would stay close to him. Right? And that we would love him all the more because of who he is and what he's done. Does that comfort you that he's praying for you? We're weak. We need it. I asked you to pray for me, but I know he's praying for me. Well, in closing, I believe the Holy Spirit put, put Peter's denials in the Scriptures to show us just how weak and how prone to sin we are. If someone so close to Jesus, so blessed by him, could fall so hard, then so can we. So can we. And if we think we stand, we need to take heed lest we fall. But I believe the Holy Spirit also put Peter's denials in the Scriptures to show us the amazing love, the amazing grace and forgiveness of God. Peter went from self-proclaimed, most dedicated follower of Jesus Christ to his greatest denier. But Jesus didn't cast him off. He didn't punish him. He didn't heavily scold him. No, he loved him. And he forgave him. And he restored him. Why? Because as I said, Peter was one of his people. Peter was one of his people, one of his sheep. And he died for his sheep. And he loves his sheep. And he will keep his sheep. And he will not forsake them. And the same is true for you and I. The same is true for us today. You see, it's as evil and, and hurtful as our sins are, they can no longer condemn us because Jesus has already been condemned for them. And that ought to, ought to bring comfort to every true believer in this room that he's already suffered our condemnation. He's already paid the price. He owns us. Now, if you're not a true believer, you haven't been born again, then that means that today you're not as sheep or as people. And what you need to know, and what you need more than anything else in this life, is the forgiveness of your sins. That's your greatest need. Uh, and, 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 and because the reason you need that is every sin you sin is, a, is a committing ultimately against God. Every thought, every word that's said against Him, and everything done, it's against Him. It is against Him. And the only place to find forgiveness, the only place to find forgiveness is in Christ and through His cross. And I would urge you to think about it, to seriously consider these things. Consider the fact that you are an offender to the one who created you. You are. I know it doesn't sound nice, 
But quite honestly, I would be I would be a false teacher to tell you anything different. You are an offender to the one who created you. And my prayer is that that, that would lead you to weep bitterly over your sins or to turn from them or to repent on them. Because if you do, you will find forgiveness and you will find life and you will see that he is looking at you with love and compassion and mercy. Amen. As I pray with the ushers, come forward. Father, we are indeed great debtors to your grace and mercy. And we praise you that you love to give it. And we praise you, praise you that in Christ there is eternal life for those who turn and believe. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you that we would not fear man. Oh God, please, may we be zealous for Christ in all ways. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Lord, give us boldness. Lord, give us compassion. Lord, give us the words to say to a world who so desperately needs to hear it. And Lord, for those this day who do not know Lord, what it means to know you, how we pray, Lord, that you would save them and drive them to the cross and give them life. Lord, thank you now as we give back to you. Lord, you've given us the greatest thing, your son. And Lord, how could we ever, ever even think of repaying you for that? But Lord, you want us to trust you. You want us to be sacrificial and giving toward you since you've given us, Lord, everything. So Lord, I pray that we would joyfully and sacrificially give to your kingdom, that you would be exalted in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.